0: Any practitioner studying nutrition and especially vitamin C will have read the book, perhaps better described as a compendium that goes through every viral, bacterial, and infectious disease, either treated in clinical trials or in cell studies in the test tube by vitamin C, going all the way back to the 1940s. The book is called Curing the Incurable. It's written by my guest today, Dr. Thomas Levy originally an associate professor of cardiology and also a board-certified attorney who has spent the last 25 years knee-deep in vitamin C, treating thousands of patients with oral and intravenous vitamin C. Tom, I'm honored to have you on my podcast and look forward to learning as much as possible. So you wrote this definitive book on uh... I call it vitamin, you call it vitamin it's a, a nice little game that the Americans and the English love to do things differently. infectious diseases. Now people listening won't have read this, so could you just quickly i mean just to give you the scale of you know the territory, just quickly tell us the viral diseases that have been treated successfully with vitamin C, and if there's any you know results that you would just like to outline to give people the sense of how potent this nutrient is. What's vitamin C helped?
1: Well, literally, it's easier to flip the side and say, has there ever been a virus that vitamin C has failed to resolve, at least in terms of an acute infection? And the answer is none. Now, maybe there's a virus out there that's never been tested, uh, either clinically or in the test tube. But all I can say is each and every virus against vitamin C being tested in the test tube has been destroyed, denatured, or otherwise rendered uh, non-infective. Furthermore, when these viral syndromes, and we're talking all the childhood diseases, measles, mumps, uh, rubella, even the more nasty things uh, uh, in terms of how severe the viral syndrome is, they all resolve quickly with large doses of vitamin C. This was pioneered by a physician by the name of Dr. Frederick Klenner uh, in the the early 30s. Uh, Vitamin C had been discovered and caused Dr. Albert St. Georgie to actually receive the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology. And somehow, I don't know how, Dr. Klenner had the genius to somehow realize (laughs) that this vitamin that nobody even knew about much less had utilized therapeutically was going to somehow be beneficial in treating viral infections and in fact in 1938 in the middle of a viral uh, polio virus epidemic in reedsville north carolina dr klenner had the opportunity to treat 60 different infants and children many of them documented by Spinal Tap to have, to have in fact polio. And he was able to completely cure the virus uh, in 57 out of 60 cases in three days and the last three cases required two more days of therapy. Actually, when I first saw that information, uh, not to sound silly or ridiculous, but I, I, the first thing I felt was rage. And then after I thought about, the, thought about it a while and thought of all the people on iron lungs and deformities and death, I actually cried a bit. I said, this is not right. Not, not, I don't mean clutter not being correct. I mean, it's not right that vitamin C is not being used on a regular basis. And unfortunately, for better or worse, that also began to open my eyes to the fact that people don't like to hear this, but that so many doctors, wittingly or unwittingly, really do not put their patient's welfare at the top of the list, okay? And we still have thousands of people across the world that die every day in the intensive care unit because their doctors refuse upon the family's request to give intravenous vitamin C and refuse to look at the data that shows how effective it is. That, in my book, as a lawyer, side of me, is negligent manslaughter.
0: Now, before we get on to the subject of COVID nineteen uh, viruses, we have Ebola, we have rabies, we have measles, we have HIV. Uh, you said that every virus so far tested in the in the test tube uh, is eliminated by by vitamin C, but. Uh, what, what, where is the clinical evidence? So just tell me, we've heard about polio, which is, of course is quite astonishing, but which uh, viral diseases, before we get onto COVID-19, have clear clinical evidence that sufficient vitamin C, be it intravenous or high-dose oral, whatever it happens to be, which viral diseases does vitamin C effectively cure, eliminate, or massively reduce the problems associated with it?
1: Well, vitamin C has uh, either as a sole therapy or as part of a larger protocol, uh, completely resolved Ebola, Zika, and Chikungunya. And this is published in the literature. (laughs) Very much ignored, but nevertheless published. I might say as a sidebar, so to speak, that mm, one of the best ways to bury a piece of information forever is to put it in the mainstream literature because all they're happy to do is get it published and then nobody wants to pick up the ball and run with it. Ebola was cured by Dr. Robert Rowan. He went out to Sierra Leone in the middle of the Ebola epidemic, brave man and very bright man. And his primary treatment actually was ozone, but he used vitamin C as well with a few other nutrients and completely cured in a few days four different cases of Ebola. Then later on in 2016, we saw the Zika fever epidemic, slash close to being pandemic, that had so many of the athletes not wanting to go to Rio de Janeiro because they were having the scare that somebody could get it and transmit it, and then a baby would have a birth defect, what they with a small head microcephaly. So that kept a lot of people out of that loop. But in Puerto Rico, they were able to show patient with intravenous vitamin C quickly and easily and rapidly resolve Zika, just like any other virus. And then a couple years after that, we had the epidemic of chikungunya, which ironically enough was focused in Puerto Rico and South America. Again, a very nasty virus, possibly one of the worst viruses you could get short of dying from it because it gave even young people a horribly disabling, crippling arthritis, sometimes for months and sometimes longer, and both vitamin C by itself and ozone therapy by itself. Vitamin C and ozone share the ability to have what's called a pro-oxidant effect that allows the virus to rapidly be broken down. But either way, uh, all these viral syndromes, it's kind of like all viruses are different but they are also very much all the same. They have similar mechanisms, they have different variations depending on uh, the actual protein configuration and conditions that favor one versus another, but they all share these common mechanisms of replication. And when vitamin C can enter the cell uh, and initiate something but called the Fenton reaction, because viruses thrive on iron, and when vitamin C can interact with iron and reduce it, and then that electron gets donated to hydrogen peroxide inside the cell, it creates a hydroxyl radical, which is the most potent oxidizing substance on the planet, which rapidly then destroys the cell in which the virus exists. And so far, so far, who can predict the future? So far, this has been proven to be the case with every virus that vitamin C is encountered in the test tube and every acute viral infection. I say acute because the chronic viruses, the Lyme and the hepatitis chronic and the HIV chronic, AKA AIDS, are not refractory to vitamin C. They're just more resistant and you have to use much higher doses for much longer periods of time and you don't have the 100% result that you get with other acute viruses.
0: Now, uh, people listening will think of uh, vi- vitamin C as an antioxidant. Uh, in other words, it, uh, it can uh, extinguish the uh, dangerous oxidants generated by not only our metabolism, also viruses, also smoking, etc. But you're talking about a pro-oxidant effect, and I believe that's when you get the vitamin C level very, very high. And that this prooxidant, this uh, peroxide, uh, is profoundly antiviral. Now, why would that not be harmful to our own cells?
1: <clears throat> well, it all has to do with the presence of the peroxide and the presence of iron. Uh, the peroxide is not typically present in high amounts inside the cell due to an enzyme called catalase. It turns out the infected cells do have a lot of catalase. Normal cells do not. Uh, That's number one. The other thing is all pathogens, viruses included, feed on iron. Okay, so the only cells in the body that are super rich in iron are the infected cells because the pathogens bring large amounts of iron into the cell, and it's the iron that needs to be converted from fe 3 plus to Fe2 plus to cause this fentanyl reaction to take place. So basically the infection and the infected cells select themselves out to be specifically targeted by vitamin C. And then ironically and wonderfully at the same time, vitamin C is destroying these infected cells by this mechanism. It's bolstering and strengthening the immune capacity of the other normal cells. It's sort of like, if you will, the perfect chemotherapy. It kills the bad guys and not only does not kill the good guys, but even makes them stronger. Uh, In the book that you talked about at the start of this, uh, I outline at least 20 different mechanisms by which vitamin C has been documented in the literature to strengthen and power and support the immune system. So uh, it's less of a specific effect, but make no doubt about it, vitamin C is singularly the most significant and powerful agent for strengthening your immune system. So obviously that goes a very long way uh, in dealing with any infection uh, as well.
0: So here we are in the middle of uh, the COVID-19 flu pandemic. We actually had a guest on the podcast uh, two weeks ago, Doris Lowe, who was talking about one of the uh, uh, unique characteristics of the COVID-19 in effectively hijacking hemoglobin uh, using it a bit as a Trojan horse. Hemoglobin is the, uh, is the container for our oxygen, which is held in there with iron. And she too was talking about how iron gets destabilized into its highly oxidative form and the effect that, uh, that uh, vitamin C has on that. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I suppose uh, people are now becoming, at least in my world, not unfortunately in the National Health Service, very aware uh, that vitamin C is critical uh, in the treatment of COVID 19, especially in the serious acute respiratory disease phase, as it is so called. But there's a, there's a big variation in dose. So you've got some doctors, like Professor Paul Marrick at the East Virginia Medical School, uh, using six grams orally, while there are many intravenous vitamin C specialists who, for a variety of diseases, might use 100 grams orally. Uh, What's the, can we address that, this big difference in sort of dosage use as we start to explore, particularly COVID-19? Sure.
1: Uh, As it turns out, in anybody that watches any of my videos going back many years, I would always make the assertion that what's the three most important factors in vitamin C therapy? And I'd say this is just like what's the three most important factors in real estate, which is location, location, location. What's the three most important factors in French cooking, butter, butter, and butter. And I would say and the three most important factors in vitamin C therapy are dose, dose, and dose. Now to be quite candid, uh, when Dr. Merrick uh, first reported his phenomenal results with uh, saving people, Uh, From sepsis at a very, very, very high rate, virtually eliminating sepsis as a cause of death in his patients. Anyone that died died of something else. He was giving only 1.5 grams every six hours, so that was a total of six grams a day. He also gave uh, corticosteroids and thiamine. Now I said, well, just like I did with Dr. Huggins, I said, I'm not in the habit of ignoring what I'm witnessing to be a fact. So I said, let's go back to the drawing board and figure out what's going on because I knew for a fact what the high doses of vitamin C would do. And then it all kind of came together because it turns out, really, that there are two factors that are prominent in vitamin C. Dose is obviously very important, but just as important, maybe slightly more important, is frequency of administration. So we see lots of patients, but since vitamin C hasn't been used hardly any at all in the hospitalized situation, they typically get it at a doctor's clinic. So the doctor wants to give 50 grams all at once because he can't give them every six hour dosage around the clock. Come to the clinic get an infusion and leave. And that works for a lot of people and I suspect it would work for the sepsis people as well, but that study hasn't been done. However, with Dr. Merrick's data, it would appear that if you took that 50 grams and even divided it into a lesser amount, like say a total of 20 grams and gave five grams every six hours, you'll get as good or better result than giving the 50 grams all at once, because vitamin C's pharmacokinetics means it goes goes into the blood very quickly, and within a few hours, most of it is excreted in the urine that doesn't go into the cells, whereas when you divide the dose every six hours, you're keeping a blood level of vitamin C present around the clock, and this, I believe, is turning out to be a very profoundly positive effect of vitamin C therapy, and to Dr. Marek's credit, uh, uh, I feel that this has enhanced the clinical application of vitamin C enormously to take whatever dose that your hospital will allow and that your doctor is comfortable giving and divide it into an every six-hour dosage. I Uh, I I say that because the optimal dosing for most people truly would be something on the order of uh, 20 to 25 grams every six hours or 100 grams a day or a little bit less but in divided doses. However, we're seeing phenomenal results using much smaller doses but making sure that they're given regularly around the clock.
0: I did wonder to some extent if this was sort of political stroke practical because I found in America that there is a Um, there is an injectable uh, vitamin C. And interestingly, on the packet, uh, you know when you buy a drug medication, you have all the small print which you can barely read unless you get out a magnifying glass, and then you see there's about 40 conditions that it could cause, even though you're meant to be taking it to help a condition. And uh, on on the vitamin C packet that I've got, it says there are no contraindications. And then, and then it says up to six grams. You know, there is no possibility of of toxicity. So I did wonder, uh, it, you know, that that, in other words, is something that an American doctor, I believe, can obtain and prescribe very easily. In Britain, it's worse. I've only managed to find a one gram injectable, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I don't think there's a limit on how often you inject it. Uh, so anyway, let's, um, let's move on a little bit to the absorption of vitamin C in its different forms. And also, even though there is this tremendous uh, effect from intra- intravenous, if you could also, in the process of this conversation, talk a little bit about oral vitamin C, because obviously there's a lot of people who don't have access to a physician doing intravenous. Now, my background understanding of this is that ascorbic acid – uh, is what animals produce. And so I, I'm kind of saying this because I would love you to challenge me and I want to learn whatever I can learn. But ascorbic acid is the form that our body is actually designed to have, that calcium ascorbate, sodium ascorbate, et cetera, they're not, they're not what animals make. So ascorbic acid is kind of what we like. We use ascorbates, particularly sodium ascorbate, because you cannot inject the very acidic ascorbic acid straight into the blood. Uh, We'll have a conversation about liposomal vitamin C as well, which could be liposomal ascorbic acid, or it could be liposomal, more alkaline, buffered ascorbate. So how is this getting into the blood? What are the transport systems? What are the best forms, both orally and intravenously?
1: Well, for what I call regular oral vitamin C, which is not liposome encapsulated or any special form like palmitate. As you said, the two primary forms are ascorbic acid, or if you will, hydrogen ascorbate and sodium ascorbate. Now, briefly addressing calcium ascorbate, I've written uh, a book called Death by Calcium, and that's not an exaggeration. So you don't want extra calcium, uh, no matter what the other benefits are, and they say it's easy on your stomach. For for that matter, sodium ascorbate is very easy on your stomach. So that serves as the, quote, buffered form, if you will. Now, as you mentioned, uh, it's natural for the animals to make their own vitamin C, and they make it in the form of ascorbic acid and release it directly into the blood. So we're sort of uh, genetically deficient in that regard. So what's the best way then to take the oral? Is either this ascorbic acid or the sodium ascorbate are the best two forms. They actually have transporter mechanisms that are very uh, that are very ubiquitous throughout the body, and they're actually the transporters that usually take up glucose. So you have vitamin C and glucose competing for the same transporters to get inside the cell. And this is significant because it also indicates that you're actually doing something especially good when you're getting more vitamin C inside the cell than glucose. Uh, The animals, if you will, make vitamin C from glucose. So that's why glucose and vitamin C are such similar molecules. That's why glucose and vitamin C get throughout the body. In all the different cells in high quantities. Uh, And that's also another thing, unfortunately, for man that makes it so beneficial for you to make your own vitamin C, is because at the same time, you're utilizing up the excess glucose stores in your body that would otherwise be toxic to you. Now, generally, with just straight up oral vitamin C, at small doses, uh, a few hundred to as much as a thousand milligrams, you'll you can absorb 30, 40, 50%. As you get into very large doses, multigram, you can start absorbing 10, 15%. You still will progressively absorb more vitamin C total the higher your dose. It's just that the higher the dose goes, the, uh, the smaller the percentage. Now, with regard to somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, can't afford the liposomes, can't afford intravenous even if it's available, You get a large amount of protection by taking something on the order of 500 to 1,000 milligrams uh, four times a day. When you're able to do this four times a day, you can keep your blood levels up into a good protective range 24-7, as the young people have to say. And perhaps a good compromise is to take the smaller dose at least three times a day to keep this coverage. Now, with regard to liposomes, that's an entirely different ball of wax because this is a specially encapsulated form that gets completely absorbed and not only goes into your blood, but gets selectively taken up inside the cells of the body without the consumption of energy. So that's why that's such a powerful form. But I don't want to minimize the importance and impact of regular, inexpensive vitamin C taken religiously around the clock will not only give you an enormous amount of protection against infectious disease, it'll give you an amount, a great amount of protection against virtually any chronic degenerative disease. And even if it doesn't resolve that disease, it'll make it substantially less uh, symptomatic and negative impact on you clinically.
0: Now, uh, just, be, just before you go on, let's unpack right. a little bit of this for those people listening. First of all, liposomal vitamin C is vitamin C that's wrapped in some kind of fat or phospholipid. Now, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there is a fast transporter system that can absorb ascorbic acid very quickly in an acid environment in the stomach. And ascorbic acid, there's a pH scale where 7 is neutral, above 7 is alkaline, below 7 is acid. Vitamin C is around 2 to 2.5, and that's a kind of you know, the stomach operates at that level. So my understanding is uh, that the ascorbic acid can kind of get straight in through the stomach. There's a slower transport system that I think sodium ascorbate can also use. So I've often wondered a couple of things here. And that is that, you know, if you're, if you're a bit broke, because the liposomal uses a completely different channel, uh, which goes straight into the bloodstream, it costs more but if you if you don't have a lot of money and you really want to get your vitamin C level up very high, um, is there some logic in using ascorbic acid, possibly also some ascorbate, and then when you hit your bowel tolerance level uh, when you can't take it anymore without you know too many trips to the to the loo uh sort of topping up with a more expensive liposomal which gets in via a different route
1: No, that's an excellent approach As a matter of fact that's Exactly what happened to me when uh, liposomes first came on the, on the forefront here, uh, the company in the United States, Live On Labs, that started the liposomes, which in Europe is altrient.com, uh, mm. is uh, they wanted me mm. to endorse their product. I didn't know anything about it. They sent me some product. I didn't really want to take it. But then I got sick with the flu, and my clinic had closed. I didn't have IV vitamin C, and I had taken as much vitamin C as I could orally without spending all my time on the uh, in the bathroom. And I remembered one thing the company had told me in their little spiel. They said it doesn't have the bowel effect. So I said, "Wow, I don't have an IV. I can't take any more oral regulars." So I took about five grams of this liposome preparation. Didn't have any worse bowel effect, and so rapidly resolved or lessened my symptoms, I was flabbergasted. So at that point in time, I said, well, it looks like this is something you need to research. But in direct addressing to your point, that absolutely is a good practical way to deal with getting your vitamin C levels up, uh, minimizing the expense by taking mostly the regular form, the quite inexpensive regular form, and then, as you said, topping it off, uh with the liposome preparation as you uh reach bowel tolerance
0: now the liposomal products come as liposomal ascorbic acid the more acidic version and they come as liposomal ascorbate usually sodium ascorbate is there any uh do you have a preference
1: you know well first of all I, i'm only aware of them encapsulating the sodium ascorbate i don't know if they do encapsulate the ascorbic acid i'm sure you could
0: yeah i had uh, one i had one today actually
1: okay yeah. uh I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on and talked about with ascorbic acid versus sodium ascorbate. Perhaps this is overly simplistic on my part as I don't have a strong chemistry background, but the action molecule is the ascorbate. Uh, Whether you have a hydrogen with it or a sodium with it, I don't believe directly impacts the electron donating capacity of the ascorbate anion. Okay. And so
0: j- just, uh, just to stop you there one minute for those listening, vitamin C is kind of called ascorbate. And when you attach a hydrogen to it, which is acid, so to speak, it, it's, it's called ascorbic acid. And when you attach like sodium to it, which is alkaline, then it would be called sodium ascorbate. So that's just the language of what we're talking about. Please keep so, going.
1: Yeah, uh, and this, in fact, is one of the things that makes vitamin C so uniquely powerful. Is nearly all antioxidants only have the capacity to donate one electron, which is the reducing antioxidant impact of the uh, of the antioxidant vitamin C molecule. Uh, as it turns out, vitamin C is capable of contributing two electrons per molecule. And even more so, after it contributes one molecule, it enters an intermediate state called the ascorbyl radical, which basically acts as a buffer, if you will, for vitamin C levels throughout the body because the ascorbyl radical, incredibly enough, is a very stable molecule. And depending on the microenvironment needs inside your cells, it can go either way. It can contribute the second electron or it can take up another electron depending on what your redox needs are throughout the body. So you combine that with the fact that it's a tiny molecule, like glucose, gets everywhere in the body, because a lot of people come along and they say, well, what about this? Look at astaxanthin, very powerful. And they look at all these studies that say, well, this is a more powerful antioxidant, than vitamin C. Well, power is not the point. The point is excess. An antioxidant does you no good unless its biochemical structure allows it to get access to all the areas that need reduction, that need electron donation. And in this regard, vitamin C donates two electrons per molecule and literally gets everywhere in the body, which is something that very few molecules due to their biochemical nature uh, can attest to.
0: Now, I want to ask you about how vitamin C gets recycled and other nutrients that help. But just before that, uh, you, you mentioned this very important point that glucose and vitamin C have a lot, of, a lot of things in common, including their transport system. And that made me think there are a lot of products out there that are full of sugar. There are powders that are full of sugar. There are, you know, chewable vitamin Cs that are full of sugar. If you are consuming a lot of sugar with your vitamin C, will you absorb less vitamin C?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a direct competition. And this, in fact, uh, you basically put your finger on why diabetes is such a horrible disease. Diabetes keeps elevated levels of sugar in your blood, which basically block, directly compete with vitamin C to get inside the cells, since vitamin C uses the same transport uh, mechanism. So the more you have glucose in your blood, the more chronic it is, the higher it is, the less vitamin C you have inside your cell. And this basically causes what you could term intracellular scurvy, scurvy inside the cell. And this in fact is why the side effects of diabetes are so vicious. So with the retinopathy, uh, where people go blind, that's because they end up with very, very little vitamin C uh, inside their retinal cells.
0: And you've got here the direct link here. We're seeing that diabetics have the worst outcome with COVID-19. We're seeing from uh, Professor Marek's work, uh, scurvy levels of vitamin C being measured in people in septic shock. Uh, we know of lots of studies that show that in diabetics, vitamin C will improve their insulin sensitivity, lower their blood sugar, and what's called the HbA1c, which is a very, very important measure. So really, this vitamin C sugar story is absolutely critical. I'm starting to think that a lot of the the negative effects of diabetes uh, are not, if you like, directly the effect of sugar. They're the effect of sugar inhibiting vitamin C to do all its important jobs.
1: You know, Patrick, one other thing I would be uh, negligent not to uh, uh, admit that even though I have uh, an involvement in the company over the last two years, There's been a discovery, if you will, that there are nutrient agents out there that appear in many people to allow the re-expression of the suppressed gene that allows people to make their own vitamin C. Uh, I've been on it for two years myself. I have some incredible anecdotes I can relate, but bottom line is we've done blood level tests and urine level tests, and these blood levels of vitamin C go up as you encounter a toxin that needs to be neutralized or uh, an oxidative stress, and they stay up until uh, that has been dealt with, which you could imagine is a pretty important thing uh, if you're not in the position to supplement your vitamin C directly, to know that your liver is going to back, back you up. It's a product called Formula 216, Formula 216. And that's the website, formula216.com. It's got a lot of information on it. And I think the public health would be extremely well served if you have this backup uh, of the ability of your liver to make vitamin C, which we don't have proof, but appears to be the case.
0: Okay, this is, I mean, this is very fascinating. So the general view is we kind of devolved. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it was 15 million years ago, but a long time ago, before we split from, you know, from the other apes, six million years ago, we devolved in the sense that we lost our ability to make vitamin C. It wasn't a disadvantage, this is the thinking, because we lived in a tropical jungle and like a gorilla, uh, which eats 4.5 grams of vitamin C a day. If you, if you can eat it and you don't have to make it, you've suddenly got all this extra glucose for energy. So the general story is that through a process of natural selection, uh, those monkeys, apes, primates who couldn't uh, make vitamin C actually became dominant. And now what you're saying is that we can evolve possibly back to being able to make it. And there's a critical enzyme, I call it GLOW. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it exactly, but you know the one I'm talking about. And what you're hinting at here, uh, so w- what what is it and uh, w- what are these nutrients? What's, what's the process that you think uh, is worth exploring uh, to conceivably allow us to... In other words, we may not have completely lost the ability to make vitamin C at all. There may be a way back.
1: Well, as it turns out, it was felt for a long time that man had just lost the genetic sequence in the DNA or had mutations there so that it couldn't possibly uh, produce this fourth enzyme, uh, glonolactone oxidase, as you said. Yeah. And as it turns out, you do still have the code, you just end up, poisoning the transcription mechanism. In other words, you still have the same sequence, but when the RNA from the matching of the DNA goes off, you have something called messenger RNA and the ribosome goes to transcribe the messenger RNA into the protein that you need. For some reason, it stops midway through makes an incomplete protein. And so you have no effect and they have in nature, things called start codons and stop codons that determine where you begin transcription, where you end it. And it appears, and there's literature to support this, that you have your stop codon in the wrong spot. So it's like you have a piece of gum on a zipper. It goes up to the gum, won't go any further. And by mechanisms unclear, certain nutrient agents appear to permit a phenomenon called read-through, which basically is just a, just a gobbledygook a, for saying you have a way of jumping over this blockage and still making the whole protein. Yeah. And in fact, there's also studies that show fetuses make phenomenal amounts of vitamin C, and many very young infants continue to make vitamin C and then lose the ability as time goes on. So I suspect like everything else uh, that goes wrong with our body, we end up having the wrong things in our diet, the wrong toxins exposed, and one toxin affects one part of your body, one toxin affects another part of your body, and somehow this nutrient uh, blocks or does away with that toxic impact, I would suspect.
0: And uh, so give us that website again, and what is the nutrient? Uh, The
1: the nutrient is a a polyphenol that's uh, derived from olive leaf extract, And uh, there's a a lot of good studies on olive leaf extract. I don't think they realized for a long time that uh, what was going on there, except for the fact that olive leaf extract, when taken in large enough doses, has a wide array of positive effects. But the the website is Formula216, F-O-R-M-U-L-A-216.com.
0: Fantastic. That's very interesting. Now, another thing that we could theoretically do is, uh, is to recycle our vitamin C to help it to work better. And again, I'll just challenge you with what I do. Uh, I remember uh, studying with uh, Dr. Richard Passwater and going to some complex oxidant, uh, antioxidant conference. And I'm a simple man. And I came back and I drew a diagram and uh, it had vitamin E being recycled by coenzyme Q and vitamin C by alpha lipoic acid. And, and then uh, the, anti- the oxidant would be passed on to glutathione and that was recycled by anthocyanidines. That's the blue-red stuff in berries and resveratrol. And uh, so I kind of figured, I'm, you know, I turned 50, I'm now in my 60s, that I would uh, support my sort of total vitamin C mechanism by having some glutathione, uh, some alpha lipoic acids and vitamin E, selenium as well is important. Uh, So every day now, I didn't used to do this, uh, I take an antioxidant formula as well as my vitamin C. So what are the nutrients, you know, how can we recycle? How can we get the biggest bang for our buck out of vitamin C? Well,
1: you you pretty much laid it out there, Patrick. Uh, I've said for a long time that... As phenomenal as vitamin C is, it only works optimally when you have a rich matrix of the different antioxidants in your body. And let me also say before I I go on, there's a lot of garbage out there that says, oh, uh, ascorbic acid is not vitamin C, it's part of a natural complex. That's malarkey, okay? We have 80 years of research showing that ascorbic acid or sodium ascorbate by itself has eradicated untold numbers of infections and improved untold numbers of chronic diseases. That said, if you want to take a product that has other good antioxidants, bioflavonoids, and the manufacturer wants to call it whole complex vitamin C, that's fine and good, but just don't be duped by the idea that vitamin C is not just vitamin C and nothing else, because that is the case.
0: So really bioflavonoids, uh, et cetera, you know, they may have some synergistic effect, but it's not a big deal. The big deal really is the dose of the ascorbic acid. Now, something else I've looked into in the health food shops is ester-C. And I've I really not managed to find out anything that really makes me very excited about it. Uh, you know, do you have a view about this?
1: Well, ester-C in a nutshell is calcium ascorbate. So I'm absolutely against any added source of calcium. Mm -hmm. It's a very large topic, I mean, beyond what we can discuss in detail. But to make the long story short is it's excess amounts of calcium inside your cells that directly leads to the increased intracellular oxidative stress that is the pathophysiology of all diseases. Mm -hmm. When you take large amounts of magnesium and vitamin C, you push the calcium out, you bring the oxidative stress down inside the cells. Uh, And you make virtually any condition better. Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, um, the calcium is your main bad guy. Okay. It's absolutely essential in small amounts for your health. And above that, it's the primary player by which cells become diseased, eventually become malignant if they don't die directly. Calcium is actually what I call a primary carcinogenic agent and should never, never, never be supplemented.
0: Now, glutathione uh, is a fascinating uh, substance. Antioxidant itself is profoundly antiviral. And normally when I have clients and I want to get a measure of their antioxidant power, even their immune power, uh, the simplest test that I can run uh, is a red cell glutathione, and it seems to be a pretty good indicator of where someone's at. Now, it's, it's precursor. It can be made from N-acetylcysteine, NAC, N-A-C, and I read some very good research, actually in a patent by a guy called Professor Troisch, uh, who showed that when you have glutathione together with anthocyanidines, for example, blueberries, elderberries, these would all be very rich, it actually helps to recycle the glutathione many times over and, and makes it more effective. So do you supplement glutathione or an acetylcysteine? You know, how important is that as a piece? of your antioxidant protection?
1: It's it's a good supplement, but I don't consider it an essential supplement, and I feel obliged to say that because there's so many good supplements out there. You can keep your stomach full and your pocketbook empty by taking every supplement that does have a positive effect because there's hundreds if not thousands of them. With regard to glutathione specifically, uh, my take, and this is uh, covered uh, in my book on magnesium, is that it's calcium, magnesium, vitamin C, and glutathione that are your primary players in the intracellular antioxidant status of the cell, which I said is the absolute uh, pathology that, upon which all disease is based.
0: Well, when by you by the have way it, there, the, the, the calcium is the bad guy, and the vitamin C and the magnesium and the glutathione is the good guy.
1: Right. And, and the glutathione, you know you have a healthy cell when you have a normal level of glutathione, but you don't really effectively get that normal glutathione level until you eliminate the overwhelming oxidative stress that is oxidizing and inhibiting the glutathione synthesizing enzymes inside your cell. And this doesn't occur until you bring the calcium down and the magnesium up And then the cell is much more amenable to the influx of vitamin C and to the resynthesis of glutathione. So there's nothing wrong with taking glutathione supporters. It's just that they're going to be strongly impeded in their positive effect until you're able to address uh, the elevated calcium and the diminished magnesium levels inside the cell.
0: Now, I, w- I want to ask you about magnesium. In fact, I almost feel I should have you back another day to just focus specifically on that. But just before we move away from recycling vitamin C, um, I noticed in the chemistry of it, we, we have this uh, enzyme uh, NAD, NADH, uh, which is all derived from niacin. And we also hear quite a lot of uh, studies. I think Paul Marick is using thiamine. Thiamine is B1, niacin is B3. So, how important are the B vitamins in this support of uh, vitamin C and antioxidation?
1: The B vitamins?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, uh, again, I don't want to oversimplify something I, I, or, or to uh, gloss over important biochemical facts and pathways, but uh, the B vitamins, well, let me backtrack a little bit and say all positive agents that you take orally as supplements and all nutritious food that you eat are only beneficial supplements, are only beneficial nutrients to the degree that they ultimately break down and metabolize to molecules that have antioxidant capacity. That's that's all nutrition is, is how much antioxidant or electron-donating capacity can you get at the cellular, at the molecular level. Conversely, for toxins, not good food, other things, depends on how much they break down to pro It's a simplification, but it's a profoundly important simplification of how all disease runs and why antioxidants have their profoundly positive effect. So going back more specifically to your point about B vitamins, all these things are important, and the things that differentiate them are – how does their unique chemical structure determine where they go, where they're most concentrated, what biomolecules do they have access to, what biomolecules don't they have access to. And this pretty much determines not only the beneficial nature of any other vitamin or any other positive supplements, along with the detrimental nature of any toxin, Uh, we have countless numbers of toxins, but they all work by the final common denominator of causing biomolecules to be oxidized.
0: So in, That's in, all in,
1: disease is, is, by oxidized biomolecules in different amounts, different locations, different concentrations.
0: Because in essence, we are a oxygen-based species. Life is based on how we use oxygen for our metabolism. In the end, we generate uh, oxidants, and it's that oxidation process that makes our life finite. So what you're really saying is that the whole of nutrition, and life in a way, and disease, uh, comes down to that balance between the, uh, uh, you know, the healthy use of oxygen and the healthy elimination uh, of oxidants, which we are, of course, contributing to massively uh, with our polluted world and chemicals and so on.
1: Absolutely. It is so significant that You know, people think when, doctors think when you have a disease, Alzheimer's, fibromyalgia, there's somehow a unique disease process going on inside those cells that it's an Alzheimer's cell. No, it's just a cell that has a unique array of different biomolecules being oxidized in different concentrations. If you're able to block the new oxidation while restoring old oxidized biomolecules back to reduced state, taking them from inactive state to active state, that resolves disease, okay? Any disease. So uh, it's a very important thing to remember, I think, um, in, in putting together protocols. It's very, it's, it's difficult, much more difficult to uh, reduce oxidized biomolecules and have a perfect uh, treatment plan by that regard uh, than it is to uh, caused the oxidation in the first place.
0: Now, we are uh, running out of time, and I almost uh, want to ask you uh, whether you'll come back and talk with me more about your new book and magnesium. But before we leave, could you just say something about magnesium and your new book and how that adds a whole piece to this jigsaw? Well, sure. In a nutshell,
1: it surprises some people when I say this, but Uh, magnesium is a more important supplement than vitamin C. That's because magnesium deficiency causes many things and makes everything worse. And nothing can take care of a magnesium deficiency other than magnesium. Vitamin C, on the other hand, as we've just been talking, there's a lot of antioxidants out there. And if you can have a rich matrix of antioxidants out there, you, you won't be well off without vitamin C, but you'll be partially compensated because you'll have more antioxidants in place. So magnesium is of incredible critical importance. It's involved in over 80% of all metabolic pathways in the body. So it's, it's just something that your body needs. And unfortunately, due, our, due to our toxic environments, it's something that virtually everybody is uh, depleted on. And just like vitamin C, it's a powerful anti-infection agent. It's a powerful anti-toxic agent. In many ways, it's the perfect partner of the vitamin C. It largely does the same things as vitamin C, but by a different mechanism, not a direct antioxidant mechanism. So it's the the perfect partner for vitamin C. uh, And really, your top four supplements are magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D3, and vitamin K2. Also, probably iodine, any and omega three, regiment, and omega sub- three. Uh, oh yes, yes. <clears throat> and any regimen should contain those. I mean, uh, there are other lots of other good things you can add to it, but each one of those, except for the iodine, I haven't seen that study. But magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin K two. Each one separately. Has been shown to, as a mono supplement, decrease all cause mortality, decrease your chance of death from anything. And that's what's because the, they go ahead.
0: What's the name of your book, and how can people get it?
1: The name of the book is Magnesium Reversing Disease, and it's uh, it's on Amazon and it's on my uh, my
0: website. Now, I might, I might need to have you back to dig deeply into that whole conversation. But yeah, I'll a lot of
1: information you, there, Patrick, for sure.
0: If you spare me some time in, a, in, a, in a maybe a month or so, I'd love to have you back. I remember I went to a cocktail party uh, a little while ago, a few years back, and it turned out somebody was uh, waxing lyrical about this guy, and I thought, it's not Professor Burton Altura, is it? Uh, Burton Altura uh, really put magnesium on the map in the medical world, you know, some maybe 20 years ago. And it turned out I went to New York and I got to meet him and have dinner with him. And I I said to him, anyone who has any cardiovascular concern at all, uh, I immediately make sure they are supplementing at least 300 milligrams of magnesium. Um, And uh, I had various views about various forms He wasn't so convinced about the differences between the forms, but he said, that's correct. You've got to get enough magnesium. It's just fundamental for cardiovascular health. And of course, that's where you came into this whole field in cardiology. Uh, How much magnesium do you take a day? Well, I take uh, the liposome encapsulated form of magnesium, which has
1: no bowel effect like the vitamin C and like regular magnesium and gets a, a strong impact inside the cell and i know it's accumulating because it brings my blood pressure down too which is a mm. uh, ultimate manifestation that you're getting the vitamin c where it needs to go mm-hmm. uh, mag- and, and also too i'll take uh sometimes i'll use uh, uh oil applications on the skin another good way of getting the magnesium in mm-hmm. uh, but as long as i have the, the liposomes i'm i i avoid taking the regular forms which obviously most people have to do because the liposomes are expensive and not that readily available. Uh, so you need to spread out a dose, find an amount that you, uh, a type that you like, glycinate, threonate, uh, any of these forms, but you need to take them in divided doses because if you take a large amount all at once, just like the vitamin C, you'll cause the, uh, the fluid increase and in the uh, osmotic diarrhea that you get as the as the product goes unabsorbed,
0: and how much do you take? How much magnesium?
1: Well, in this particular case, it's uh, the liposome form delivers far more than anything else. So it's the equivalent of uh, a little more than a thousand milligrams of magnesium a day.
0: Okay, yeah. So that's a, that's a lot higher than I've been doing. We'll have to have it. Well,
1: it's it's a dose it's a dose yeah. that you wouldn't be able to tolerate if you mm-hmm. took the regular magnesium form. Yeah. So that's that's the other point.
0: Well, I'm going so to, to have to sh- have a... A chat with you should. about that. I'm sorry, go
1: ahead.
0: <laughs> now I have to ask you a last question because we're running out of time. Um, why, in your opinion, is vitamin C still being sidelined? It's forty years since Linus Pauling championed its cause. The great, twice Nobel Prize winner, forty-eight uh, PhDs, honorary PhDs in most cases, the founder of uh, of uh, molecular biology, really the father of modern chemistry. Uh, genius. It's 40 years, it's 80 years since uh, physicians like Frederick Klenner started to show us phenomenal effects. So what, in your opinion, is the reason that still we haven't woken up to this power of of vitamin C?
1: Well, it's my opinion, but I don't think there's any doubt about it. It's covered in great detail in my book, Primal Panacea, which I say goes into not only the politics of medicine but also the effect of vitamin C. So let me start by saying and I don't mean to exaggerate I consider there to be more politics in medicine than there are in politics. It's it's a sad statement I know but one is, is I don't want people to misinterpret me there's nothing good about a pandemic. But one good thing that appears to be resulting from this pandemic is vitamin C has now gotten out of the genie bottle. There's so many people now around the world that are aware that intravenous vitamin C and doses of vitamin C are strong ways to deal with the coronavirus uh, as well as other viruses that I don't think when this pandemic is over, they're gonna be able to put vitamin C back inside that genie bottle. I think too many people know now. Why would this be? You know, I was reluctant to say this for many years but I'm no longer reluctant to say it. The vast majority of doctors do not place the welfare of their patient as their number one concern. I can't make it any clearer than that. If they can make a lot of money and the patient gets well, then they're happy. But they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be informed of something that they don't know anything about. And they certainly don't want to be told by some pompous family member who's discovered something on the internet that maybe something as crazy as vitamin C could be good for their dying loved one. I mean, I'm, I'm planning on another book down the road and the book is going to be the negligent homicide, the negligent manslaughter of modern medicine.
0: Well, I my almost parting words with Linus Pauling, who I filmed uh, shortly before his death when he was working on on uh, lipoprotein A and the role of vitamin C in relation to cardiovascular health. He said to me, Patrick, he looked me in the eye and he said, Patrick, follow the logic. It's the logic that counts. Don't worry about the randomized controlled placebo trials. They come later. It's the logic. And I have learned uh, that the reason why we still are not following the logic uh, is because the flip side of that is follow the money. There's no money to be made out of these cheap, uh, uh, non patentable natural substances. So, as we end, uh, Dr. Tom Levy, I want to thank you immensely, not only for your one hour of uh, learning that we have all had, but also for your 25 years of following the logic. I know what it's like to sift through all this research and condense it into books. Uh, uh, Tom has many books. Look them up uh, on Amazon or, or wherever you can. Do read them. Um, Dr. Tom Levy, thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Glad for the opportunity to uh, to speak to the folks.
0: I'm very excited to let you know that Flu Fighters, my book on how to win the Cold War by boosting your natural immunity with non-toxic nutrients, is now out, uh, both in paperback and also Uh, in Kindle and audio book explains how viruses work and where are their weaknesses, why animals that make vitamin C rarely succumb to flu or cancer, the truth about vitamin C and how to use it when you're infected, how black elderberry blocks viral replication, why vitamin D levels crash in winter to make us more susceptible, and other critical immune support nutrients from selenium to zinc, and also how intravenous vitamin C saves lives in those with respiratory distress.